Good morning. Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 9. As we get to look into this last section of John chapter 9, where John highlights the question of who can truly see and who can truly not see. Let's begin by starting in verse 24, and I'll read through verse 41. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. O Lord, we we come before you this morning with utter amazement that you can do such thing as open the eyes of the blind both physically but in our own cases spiritually opening our blind eyes so that we may see you and recognize your amazing grace and lord i pray that in this hour as we look into your word here for this incident with this man standing up firm on his foundation of faith that we also would experience your amazing grace again and that you would be glorified in us having our eyes opened, that we would enjoy your presence and you would receive more glory because we enjoy you more. Lord, I pray that you would just pour out your spirit here in this hour with us 
and especially upon me as I speak your word. Father, I pray that my mouth would be shut to anything that is not from you and that my lips would be loosed to everything that is from you. And we give glory to your name, O Lord. We give glory to God the Father, to God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, so that we may richly be blessed and bless you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So, here we have this guy who was born blind, and then Jesus miraculously opens his eyes by putting mud on his eyes and telling him to go to the Pool of Shalom and wash. So the guy walks down to the Pool of Shalom from the gate of the temple, washes his eyes, and he can see as if he was always had great sight, even though he was born blind. And the Pharisees just can't stand it. It's driving them nuts that Jesus did this right after he said, I am. And so they're looking for a way to discredit this miracle and deny that Jesus is anything other than a reprobate that needs to be stoned. And so they've already asked the guy what happened, and then they asked his parents, trying to get them to say that he wasn't actually born blind or something. Well, that didn't work. So now they call the man back in. And the ironies of this passage, they just keep going. I mean... They say to him, give glory to God. And the man actually does. He actually does give glory to God for what has happened. But actually giving glory to God for what happened isn't what they wanted. The irony here is that that phrase they're using, give glory to God. They don't want glory to go to God. They want the exact opposite that Jesus would be declared a sinner. And this isn't just my whims and whimsical thinking about this phrase. Give glory to God isn't the first time it's appeared in God's word. We can go back to the book of Joshua and the sin of Akan. And what is it Joshua says to him when he's been discovered? Give glory to God. And confess your sin. Tell me what you have done. These boneheads in the black robes are actually implying, not implying, they're actually saying to this guy, look, you need to submit to the sinful act that was done just like Akan did in front of Joshua. <sighs> You've got to be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. But by God's grace and mercy, the man born blind who can now see doesn't take the bait. He doesn't fall for their trick. The illiterate, formerly blind man does actually give glory to God. He actually does what the Pharisees command him to do, even though that's not what they really meant. In essence, they spoke better than they intended when they said to him, give glory to God. And then the man does give glory because he says, look, I was blind and now I see. 
And here, this is significant because John is using word plays again to illustrate the spiritual sight as well as the physical sight. This isn't just that the blind man now can physically see and he's not blind anymore. His spiritual eyes are opened and he sees Jesus as someone who is much greater than a simple man that can do a miracle. He starts out with the man, as we've talked about before at the beginning of this chapter, after the after Jesus opens his eyes, he says, the man Jesus did this. Then they say, well, who is he? Who do you say he is? Well, he says, well, he's a prophet. Now he says, look, this is a man who not only is a prophet, but he actually does the will of God and God listens to him. How in the world does an illiterate blind man see that well? Because the spirit of the holy God opened his eyes. Just like he opened our eyes. But also John's highlighting the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. I mean, the extent to which they go to discredit and deny this miracle and somehow try and turn Jesus into a sinner is astounding. It's like, can you, you know, it's the old phrase, you know, when you're in a hole, stop digging. It's like, hey, maybe you guys should put the shovel down because every time they try to dig a hole, it just gets deeper for them, not for Jesus. They make things worse for themselves. And as I've said before in, in verses 12 through 23, that they actually legitimize the miracle by their inquisition. And now it's not only are they legitimizing the, the, the miracle even greater by bringing the man in for a second time, he's actually the one testifying and giving teaching to them. And then comes this whole thing about whose disciple is who. Notice how bold this man becomes here in verses 26 through 34. I mean, he is almost indignant and challenging the Pharisees on their spiritual blindness. I mean, you know, what did he do? And he answered, I have already told you, you would not listen. Whoa, where does a, where does an illiterate blind man get that kind of backbone in front of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious rulers of Jerusalem, the elites? Like, and, oh, oh, wait, remember, he's standing there by himself, right? His parents have already thrown him under the bus. So he's standing there all by himself in front of this grand council. And he has no fear. Where does that come from? It only comes from the Holy Spirit stealing someone. As Jesus will say later in chapter 15, he will give you the words to speak. It's almost like this is a down payment on that promise coming in chapter 15. Oh, and then the Pharisees reaction to this blind man, to the blind man's question, shows how spiritually blind they are. And how they are their father's children, the devil. From chapter 8, verse 44, remember Jesus called them children of the devil, that the devil was their father just a short time ago. And depending on how you chronologically time this, it may not even been 24 hours since he told them that. And here they are spewing, just poisonous speech 
They reviled him, insulted him, said he was born in utter sin. Oh, yeah, that's right. We forgot. If anything bad happens to you, it's because you're a sinner. Give glory to God and confess. Grow up. This is not the truth. Yes, it is true that sometimes the Lord causes difficulties in our lives because of our disobedience as a consequence of it. But he's already made it clear from the very beginning before he even touched this man that he did not have blindness because he had sinned. That it had nothing to do with him or his parents' sinfulness that caused him to be blind. But so that, what? God is glorified by Jesus healing this blind man's sight. God is glorified. Now, we don't know. In other places, there was a man who was lame for 40 years. In some places in Mark, it was a man who was blind for 40, been blind since birth for 40 years. We don't know how old this guy was in this incident. But he's at least 25 or 30 at a minimum. This man had to live for 25 or 30 years in blindness, having never seen with sight and physical eyes so that God was glorified and Jesus was glorified by him miraculously healing him. Okay, put yourself in this guy's sandals. Are you really willing to take 25 or 30 years of misery and physical blindness just so that you can be used by God to glorify his name? I know the Sunday school answer is yes. I know that we would all say it right here in front of each other. But would you really mean it? I mean, look, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to ask if there's another way to do this besides me being blind for 25 or 30 years. Like, isn't there another way to do this, Jesus, where you still get glory? Now, of course, the man had no understanding or concept that what he was experiencing for all of his life was to lead for God's glory. He didn't know it until Jesus said it right there in front of him. And then 15 minutes later, his eyes are healed and he can see. He didn't understand any of that. But we're here. This is us. What do we understand? What do we know? What unpleasantness are you willing to take and receive from our Lord as directly from his hand so that he is glorified? I don't know the answer to that question. You just, you know, that's, that, that's one you have to answer for yourself. I just know I struggle with it to answer that question for myself. Like really, you know, like every, every time the subject comes up with guys, like, can we do this a different way? So here are these blind Pharisees spewing all this hatred, showing that they are their father, the devil. And remember last week I told you, hating Jesus will make you dumb and crazy. And then by the time we get into verses 29 through 30, the roles have now fully reversed. The man is now the teacher and the Pharisees are the students. 
This just shows the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. A formerly blind, illiterate beggar is now the spirit-filled teacher and the Jewish elites are the students. The least likely persons are the most powerfully used by God. I'm not qualified for this job. That's why you are. That's the uncomfortable upside-downness of the kingdom of God. I'm not an evangelist. That's why you're the best person to speak the gospel truth to this person in front of you. The other thing is, you notice, did you notice how this interaction between the blind man and the Pharisees, especially in this section of it, it has this Old Testament prophet feel to it? Did you notice that? He's like an Old Testament prophet speaking the truth of God to the hard-hearted Jewish leaders and people. It has that same feel to it. And and like their forefathers, the Pharisees reviled and insulted and humiliated and then cast out this man from their presence. Just like what happened with the prophets in the Old Testament. It's amazingly stunning to me how similar this incident is with a Jeremiah. And then what comes next for them after they've cast this guy out and done all this stuff, I mean, they truly deserve what they get in verses 40 and 41. They deserve it. They actually deserve more than what they get from Jesus. And they do, just not today. Just not that day in that moment, but they get what they deserve. And it's easy to kind of focus on the negative side of this passage, the Pharisees' blindness, the way they despicably treat this guy in front of them. It's easy to focus on that. And while it's true, absolutely true, that John wants us to see that and understand all the ironies and the contrast and the spiritual blindness is being symbolized in the physical blindness, while it's true he wants us to see all of that, I don't really think that's even the primary means and motives of this chapter. I think the primary, look, this chapter begins and it ends. This narrative begins and ends with Jesus healing and restoring. And so that's the primary. Jesus comes to heal and restore. Yes, he comes to judge, but he comes to heal and restore first. Jesus has healed the man of his physical blindness at the beginning of this story. And now having heard of his mistreatment and his unjust punishment by the Pharisees, Jesus comes to heal the man's emotions. He comes to restore him to his joy and to his full salvation. This man receives a far greater reward than being in the synagogue. He receives the gift of seeing Jesus' face. He gets to see Jesus' face? Wow. That's hard to believe. Right, remember when Jesus puts the mud on his face, he still can't see. And he has to go to the pool of Shalom and wash it off. So he's never actually seen Jesus. He's just heard his voice and felt his touch. 
And when Jesus says to the man, you have seen him, again, John is using this double meaning of physical sight along with spiritual sight. You have now seen him physically, but you have also seen him spiritually to receive your Redeemer. Here's something maybe you've not thought of. This man is an example to us. He's an example to us in our belief and witness of Christ. Look, like us, the man did not physically see Jesus' face until after the man had boldly proclaimed what Jesus did for him and stood firm on the witness through a hostile and venomous persecution. None of us have seen the face of Jesus. If you have, I really would like to talk with you. I really would. None of us have seen the face of Jesus, yet we confess that he is our Lord and Savior and that he has redeemed us from our sins by his shed blood on the cross. We've never seen Jesus' face. We didn't watch his crucifixion. We didn't see his resurrection. We didn't meet him after the resurrection like the disciples did. We haven't seen his face, yet we believe on faith that he has saved us and cleansed us by his shed blood. And some of us have had to stand firm in our witness and proclamation and testimony of what Jesus has done for us in hostile situations when people were not interested in hearing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even when we tell them what he did for us. Oh, this guy even experienced the abandonment of his parents during his testimony and witness to Jesus and what Jesus has done for him. He believed in Jesus. He proclaimed Jesus. He even spoke boldly like an Old Testament prophet to his persecutors, all without ever having physically seen Jesus' face. Then, when the work was done, Jesus came to him, and the man's faith became sight. That's us. Throughout our life, we must give testimony and boldly proclaim what Christ has done for us, even though we've never seen his face. But praise God, we will. One day, the faith will become sight. And oh, what a gloriously joyful day that will be. What a joy-filled day that will be to finally see the face of Jesus and to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And look, I'm firmly convinced of this. I'm more convinced of it now than I was 20 years ago. Do you know what it takes to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant? I mean, we all want that. Do you know what it takes? Faithfully proclaim and testify to what he has done for you. That's it. He saved me when I didn't deserve to be saved. He saved me when I was convinced I could save myself. I spent 20 years trying to earn my salvation, believing that if I taught the word of God good enough, if I learned the word of God good enough, if I proclaimed the word of God good enough, if I got evangelized enough people and discipled enough, if I did enough work, he would finally love me. For 20 years, I believed that lie. 
For 20 years, I was driven by a lie because I wanted to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And I thought that's the only way to do it because of my shame of what I had done. I was literally telling people to believe in the grace of Christ, but I didn't. Well, yeah, it's true. His mercy is grace, but that's for everybody else, not for me. I don't get that because I messed up. It was a lie. But in his loving kindness, he showed me the truth. And I finally understood and received grace and the love of God without having to earn it. And I was a different person as a result. To everybody else, I looked like a really good guy. But to my wife and my children, I was a wee bit harsh. I was a wee bit unforgiving. Because if you don't believe you've been forgiven, it's hard to actually forgive others. The commandment is to forgive others as we have been forgiven. Well, if I haven't been forgiven, then I don't feel very motivated to forgive. That's what Jesus did for me. He gave me his grace. I finally felt his wonderful love for me. I finally received forgiveness from him for everything I'd done. And then I was able to forgive others. I was actually able to forgive persons who did very bad things to me. And persons who did not so bad things from a human perspective. What has he done for you? Tell me. Tell us. Tell them what he has done for you. But then Jesus puts a a period on this story with the next couple of verses, 39 through 41. See, now Jesus gets serious with all these false shepherds because the Pharisees and what they've done here, it isn't just, you know, the the hatred they had for this guy and the mistreatment. It's everything they've been doing to be false shepherds to the people of Israel. Every single person in that room was supposed to be a shepherd called and appointed by God to shepherd his people like David. And instead, they couldn't do nothing but be the false shepherds of Ezekiel 34. And Jesus just makes this plain to what John John has alluded to all along this passage, that the spiritual blindness of these Pharisees. And Jesus said, For judgment I came to this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees who heard this said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus just makes it plain as day. He gets right in their face. Yes, yes. He's actually saying, yes, you are blind. But when he says this word, 
You would have no guilt if you were blind, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. He's actually in their face saying, yes, you are blind. You are spiritually blind. And there's nothing I can do for you. Come in. Yeah, he, did, he didn't say that word. There's nothing I can do for you. But it's dripping off the words that are there. Because you will not let me do anything for you. They are guilty of being all that Jesus said they were in chapter 8. They're guilty of being the false shepherds in Ezekiel 34. And their guilt remains. And this idea of them being false shepherds is really highlighted when we get into the next chapter 10 where Jesus proclaims and tells us, I am the good shepherd. And everything he tells us next and what we're about to see is in dark, stark, bright contrast to what these false shepherds have done in chapter 9. Ah. Oh. What a gloriously beautiful Savior we have. That he would love like this. That he would love to come find this man and make his faith fully sight by seeing him not just as a man or a prophet or one who does God's will, but one who sees him as Lord and Savior and worships him. It is absolutely true that this man's understanding of who Jesus was was severely incomplete. But he understood enough to recognize he is Lord and to worship him. That's all that's necessary to understand that he is Lord and to worship him. And I cry out to you this morning, brothers and sisters, worship our Savior. Worship your Savior. Proclaim what he has done for you. Do it in front of us who are welcoming and warm to your testimony. And God help you do it whenever you are standing in front of the hostile ones who don't want to hear it. But you know God's called you to do it. And I don't know how, but the rest of us will be here to help you when that day comes. I don't know how we're going to help you do it. And at the end of the day, the truth and reality is nothing but the Spirit of God can steal your spine to stand in front of the hostile crowd and proclaim Jesus is Lord. The book, Justin's Book of Martyrs, is filled with every page of brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the church history, throughout the ages, who did just that. Latimer and Ridley did it in the middle of the street in Oxford while the fire was licking their legs. The Asian believers who exposed themselves to brutal beatings in prison because of their bold proclamation of Jesus. <laughs> and if that wasn't enough, some of them even want to go into the Arab Muslim world and proclaim Jesus there so they can get their head chopped off. Fear not, 
and speak the truth of Jesus, for it will bring a reward far greater than slinking back and avoiding pain. Okay, so what? Well, this is obvious. Give glory to God. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. He is our Savior. Look what He has done for you and give glory to Him in your testimony of what He did. He Look, He loved you. He sought you out. Right? Remember, nobody goes looking for Jesus until Jesus, because no one can come to Jesus unless the Father calls Him. Jesus sought you out. He poured His love onto you. He shed His blood for you. He redeemed you. He adopted you. He made you a member of the royal family through God the Father. And one day, you and I will sit in judgment over the angels. 1 Corinthians 6.3. What is that? Eight. Yeah, I'm not the math guy. I'm even counting off of my fingers and I still can't keep up. Eight. Eight things I can come up with that he's done for you because of your faith in Christ. Give glory to God. The other thing that struck me about this, and be encouraged that God will use you. Look, the least likely person for something special. I cling to that hope every day and every Sunday morning when I step into this church. That he will use the least likely person for something special. I mean, to a certain degree, it's kind of sad that you guys get me as your pastor and the one who proclaims the hope and truth of the gospel to you each Sunday. But I believe and I trust, even on the days when I don't feel it, that he will do something special in this church and through this church and for this church. And like the man who was born blind, we just have to faithfully give testimony to the Jesus we have never actually seen. And only after we have done so will we see his face. We will know, as in the song, It Is Well With My Soul, written by Horatio Spafford, on the deck of the ship in the middle of the Atlantic, standing over the spot where his daughters died in a storm a week earlier, we will be able to stand and say with him, faith becomes sight. Think about that. It is well with my soul. What a rich, gloriously beautiful, hopeful song it is. So often sung at the most brutally painful moments in life given to us by the inspiration of Jesus to Horatio Spafford. No, I don't mean that it's equal to Scripture, but it's still inspired. But Spafford had to lose his daughters to write those words. He had to stand over the 2,000 or two-mile depth of the Atlantic Ocean in the spot where they died drowning in a storm from the ship that sunk 
two weeks earlier to be able to write those words. We are gifted and blessed because Horatio Spafford suffered. Okay. Okay. I can do this. Spafford can do that. I can do this. Whatever this is, whatever it is, you can do it because of the same Jesus who sustained the formerly blind man in front of the Pharisees, who sustained and gave Spafford those words in the middle of the Atlantic, that same Jesus sustains us so that he is glorified. Let's pray. O Lord, who is sufficient for this? No one. None of us are, and none of us ever will be. Yet, in your gloriously amazing, beautiful grace and power, you do it anyway. Through the trials and the hardships, you glorify your name by how we trust you. And I pray that you will instill in us and fill us with that kind of trust and hope and belief. So that when we have walked through the valley of the shadow of death and have suffered well, glorifying your name through it, we can walk out the other end and live in the joyful glory of your flat-fruited plain. May it be so, O Lord. May it be so in each of us individually and all of us as a church. In Christ's name, amen.